Welcome to Beyond Queer Stories, the podcast that gives voice to the queer community through the art of storytelling. Welcome, everyone. We have another episode of Beyond Queer Stories. I'm Dawn. I'm Anna Deshawn. We have Jana here with us today. Jana is a moth story slam winner who is figuring out the meaning of life over and over again. Her tales chronicle her journey from small town evangelical to big city bisexual. She's been featured on the Love Hurts, Choose Your Own Religion, and Otter Story Hour podcast, and has performed live in Los Angeles and New York. Welcome. Glad to have you here today. So Jenna, to kick off our conversation, the good people would love to know what identities do you feel most influence your experiences? What identities most influence my experiences? That's such a, a great way to phrase that. Well, I identify as queer or bisexual. I'm cisgender and I'm white and I have, um, I guess, like I'm from a mostly middle class background. So there, I acknowledge that I come from certain privileges. Uh, But in terms of my sexual orientation, I usually identify as queer or bisexual, and I I like to say queer rather than bi often because I identify so much with um, the queer community, and those feel like my people and my family, uh, and that's the kind of the legacy that I feel like informs so much of who I am. So even apart from whoever I'm with at any particular time, I always feel like a queer person and that my identity is informed by the queer people who have come before me. So um, yeah, that's always important for me to acknowledge because I feel those ties wherever I go and whoever I'm with. So I think that that's really interesting because I'd love to dig deep into the pieces around bisexuality even because I've had conversations with folks and they talk a lot about how the B in LGBTQ is actually the the letter that tends to be most forgotten or mm-hmm. least visible of all of the letters. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like you didn't have an opportunity or you didn't feel like there was a strong bi community? Yeah. Um, so when I first came out, I came out as, gay um because i thought that (laughs) bisexuality was something made up or it was something that was not legitimate and because i felt that strong pull toward to being with women uh and i identified so much with the queer community that i became a part of i didn't think that bisexuality was a possibility for me i felt like it would when I, I, the conversations I heard people when, when they talked about bisexual, bisexual people and bisexuality, it was something like a fake identity or people who weren't real queer people. And so I, for a long time, identified as gay and sort of like repressed the part of myself that ever wanted to date straight cis men because I thought that made me an illegitimate queer person. So in a sense, I started oppressing myself in the opposite direction. 
So I didn't really know that many bisexual people. Uh, and it was not until I moved to LA and I got a new therapist that I talked to some of these things with, but, uh, and she pushed me to, um, join this group called Ambi, which is, um, a membership of bi bisexual individuals, I think is what it stands for. And it was the first time I had been around groups exclusively of bisexual identifying people. And I could see what we all had in common and like feel that my identity was embraced by those people. And that was a completely new experience for me because I felt like the communities I had been in before didn't really accept bisexual people as being legitimate. That's something that's really important to me now to identify as bi and still identify as queer, even though at the moment I am dating a straight cis man, um, because I'm still queer wherever I go and whoever I'm with. Uh, and that never changes. Uh, and I wish that there were more spaces that allowed bisexual people to be out and queer and embraced them um, without saying that they're like straight passing or um, that they're like taking the easy route because we a lot of us deal with some of the th same things that other queer people deal with in terms of like not having relationships be embraced and struggling with our own identities and feeling like we can't always be ourselves in every space. Um, and so I think that's important to recognize and to, um, to support and affirm by people and their identities. Thank you for all that. I know another struggle I often hear about is when bisexual people are in a relationship with somebody who is the opposite gender, that it becomes even a, a bigger form of invisibility sometimes. So I'm curious, what ways do you kind of stay connected with the queer community and um, really still validate that part of your identity when, you know, you know, you're with a partner with a different sex and people likely read you just as straight because of that? Yeah, that that is a strange experience to be read as straight and to be in spaces uh, with straight people. And I know that I'm not one of them and I can definitely feel that. But um, other people don't necessarily see that. So I guess for me, I, I still have a lot of queer friends. And so I feel like my my real friends understand and under like get who I am, no matter who I'm with at the time. And I appreciate that they affirm that. And I can, you know, talk about all of my relationship history and they get it. So. I'm often in conversations with queer people who understand and affirm me. And I, I really appreciate that from them. I try to be involved in queer meetup groups or, or the bisexual meetup group I was talking about so that I can be around queer people. I consume a lot, of, like a lot of queer media. And so we, we like talk about the L word or like we talk about, you know, queer movies. I just like went and saw portrait of a lady on fire which was great when I could still go to a movie theater I saw that and so I feel like that is uh, that's something that's important to me and I also try to uh, read about queer pioneers of the past like people who paved the way for us and um, to learn about our history um, and 
that's I feel connected to that as well. So I'm a huge fan of queer history, history in general. You got to share some of those folks who like you feel like made a big impact on your life. Yeah, I have. I have this altar over here um, of, you know, those candles that are um, of saints, but of modern day saints. I have one of James Baldwin and Frida Kahlo are over there. Um, Those people are super rad and I love them and I think about them a lot. There are certain people who's just whose identity, whose existence sort of makes me tear up when I think about them. And one of those people is Marsha P. Johnson. Like whenever I think about the things that she had to survive um, and the, like the spirit of joy that she radiates when like in, in just in photos and like the little bit of video footage that exists of her, that's just so beautiful to me. And the, I like admire her so much. And um, I feel like I, you know, she's, she's in my mind constantly. Like, am I, radiating that sense of joy and that fearlessness of being myself. Um, and obviously she, she struggled much with many things that I will never have to know. Um, but I admire her so much for that. Yeah. We can be great friends. (laughs) Connect over good people. No, like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera as a tag team during that time. I think it's so important to speak their names because they have been left out of so much of the history. I feel like whenever Harvey Milk is mentioned, both of them Mm. should be mentioned. Um, Mm. I feel like, you know, like people's existence coincides and they, one can't exist without the other. Mm. Right. Like, and how we're all tied together. James Baldwin. Then I think about all around the Harlem Renaissance and all the people who lived during that time and then it just reminds me, like, if they could do it then, why the hell can't I do it today? Really can pull a lot of courage mm-hmm. when you know who your people are. Because mm-hmm. if they can do it in the 60s, my Jesus, I hope I can do it in 2020. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I love that. I love that. And staying connected to all the ancestors and all that knowledge and history and pulling strength from it. This can be so, so grounding and so motivating. Appreciate that. I'm also curious, how did your evangelical background kind of impact your identity and how you came to understand yourself too? Yeah. um, So I grew up in a denomination called the Christian church, which is sort of like Baptist and, um, I come from a family of ministers. My dad is a minister. Five of my seven uncles are ministers. Several of my cousins are ministers. So it was Mm -hmm. like very much the family business and the thing that tied us all together. And so it was very hard for me to accept my sexuality. I came out officially at 20 or 21. Um, but you know, all through high school, I had crushes on girls and I felt like there had to be something deviant about me. Like somehow I was broken and that had led me to have these like sinful feelings. It's everything I heard about queer people growing up was all about how 
perverted they were and it was a sin and it was deviant and it was I would hear messages like oh women only go with other women when they can't find a husband or they're only like that because they were abused or something you know all of these messages that made me feel like the person that I was and and the feelings that I felt were not acceptable And so I really pushed that down for a long time. And I think it's also was somewhat my upbringing that led me to first come out as gay rather than bi, because it felt so much like I identified with that part of myself that was so repressed and explained as deviant to me um, that I felt like Oh, okay. So if I'm, if there's something different about me, I have to be gay and then I have to be in this other box. I can't, there's like, there's no way that I can be bisexual and sort of be a person who can cross those lines. Um, it felt like I had to choose a side. And so I chose to come out as gay and I dated women exclusively for several years. And I also think that because I had the the framework of of a religion that made me think I had to be a certain way, I carried that into my identity as a queer person that I felt like I had to fit an ideal of what a queer person was going to be. And that was also part of why it was hard for me to accept that I was bi, because being bi would be like not being a quote unquote, good queer person. Um, And so and then I also felt like I had to dress in certain ways that like were more stereotypical of what I thought a quote unquote, good queer person would be, um, rather than like learning to really accept myself. Um, Because I led that's something that I did in my religion. And then when I left my religion, I still carried those patterns with me, which was really interesting to realize, you know, Um, wherever you go, there you are. So I've been having to learn to undo some of that, some of that like uh, internalized depression and the part of me that feels like I have to conform to an ideal rather than just be myself. Religion is really powerful in that way, right? I grew up in a religious family as well. My dad's side of the family started a church and they were a missionary Baptist. And then my parents met at a Lutheran church. Let's talk about polar opposite experiences. <laughs> uh, Black Lutheran church on the South side. So I would, you know, two Easter speeches, everything was in twos. So I'd spend the morning because Baptist church always started a little later. I spend the morning <laughs> at, with the Lutheran church and then the afternoons I'd be at with my, my family's church um, Wednesdays with choir rehearsal. And so you, you don't understand how much of that becomes part of your identity until you start to break things down when you're confronted with the fact that, Oh crap, I might be a little different. Um, <laughs> and then you have these moments where you begin to unpack all the things that you've learned and it becomes this exercise in, in finding yourself. And you st- and then you start to realize how much of the stuff, maybe I do take some of it because some of it is good, right? Uh, and then some of it you just got to leave. And goodness gracious, therapy saved my life. Mm-hmm. You talk about like unpacking some of the stuff, therapy saved my life. Um, otherwise, 
I'd probably, you know, be damning myself to hell or something like that. And so I feel like queer folks, if they grew up in sort of this religious sort of upbringing, confront some of these ideas at a much younger age (laughs) and begin trying to find spiritual journeys much younger if they want to survive. Because outside of that, you don't feel like you got much to live for. It's like one of the first places you learn about love is one of your first communities. It's like one of the few consistent things you have when you're growing up outside of school and families. Like, so when that begins to break down, you're just like, oh crap. Um, how much of this do I want to hold on to? So yeah, that's a lot. And it's very real for a lot of people. How is your family today? Do you find like you have a close relationship? We have a better relationship now than we did about 10 years ago. Uh, At first, you know, when I came out to them uh, that, and I I was dating my first girlfriend at the time and. It's always a girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Always a girlfriend. And, you know, my parents didn't react as poorly as I had expected that they would which I'm very grateful for that. I was expecting that they were going to disown me and cut me off of communication and that it was going to be something very harsh. Um, They were clearly disappointed, uh, but they, they sort of weren't surprised. (laughs) So (laughs) I think the, the disappointment was felt by me pretty harshly hard. It was hard for me to feel like I had disappointed my parents and that they were, you know, they felt like they had made a mistake and that's why I was dating this woman now. Like they, I think that they thought that they had failed as parents and that's why they had a queer child. Mm -hmm. And that was hard for me. Um, and I think it was, it was hard for them too. Um, they tried to be really supportive of my girlfriend in the sense that they treated her nicely and they talked to her like she was a person, but it never felt like they really accepted that we were in a relationship. It was sort of like, Oh, it's Jana's friend that's here. You know, it was treated kind of more like that. And um, I felt a lot like I couldn't really talk to them about my life. Um, I, you know, I felt like I had to underplay things I was doing. Like, I went three times to a camp, the auto straddle camp Mm. that they do, um, which is a magical, wonderful experience. It's like 300 queer people on a mountain and it's, you know, summer camp. Things I want to go someday. It sounds amazing. It's very fun. Um, And I, it was a very transformative experience for me uh, to go to that. But I, you know, I would tell my parents, oh yeah, I'm going to California to go to this adult summer camp and like really (laughs) understand what it was. So it was just things like that where I felt like I couldn't fully talk to them about what I was doing or who my friends were, you know, or who I was. And the past few years, I've tried a lot harder to be myself around my parents, which feels sometimes like a monumental task to um, to really be authentic without worrying that they're going to be disappointed or that they're going to disapprove. Um, And I'm not perfect at it by any means, but what I've found is that it's impossible to have a good, genuine relationship with 
people when you are pretending to be someone else. Um, and that involved, that includes the ways in which I was like sort of muting myself to feel like I could be more acceptable for my parents. Like, I wouldn't talk as much and I wouldn't tell them what was really going on. And I wouldn't like show my sense of humor, you know? And so then it's, you, it's hard to develop closeness with people like that. Um, so what I'm finding now is that even if I'm not a hundred percent, maybe the person that my parents always want me to be, uh, I can actually now have a genuine relationship with them and a closer relationship being my myself, even if I'm not perfect in their eyes, um, as opposed to like pretending to be a perfect person or pretending that I am not who I am because you can't foster a genuine relationship like that. It's interesting how parents try and make sense of things that they don't understand. Because I had a similar experience when I first came out in terms of like my dad trying to pinpoint a thing that made me queer to better understand it because it's hard to just understand like, oh, this is just how some people are. Um, I've shared some on the podcast that I grew up around a lot of domestic violence and, you know, saw men being violent toward women. And he kind of labeled that as probably the reason, you know, that I Mm -hmm. ended up being queer. And it must be because I didn't see men in a positive light. And I grew up around um, dysfunctional relationships and family dynamics. Uh, When I know that I felt like signs of it from a really young age, even before I was really exposed to all that. But I think in a way, it just kind of helps, helps make sense of it until it really sits in and is more understood. And um, I've been very fortunate that like, since then, he's really tried to educate himself. And he watches queer TV shows and things like that. And he'll tell me about it. He's like, Oh, I watched this and, and has some queer co workers that he talks with. And, and it's been really heartwarming to like, see him put forth such effort. And I think, just as I've kind of like developed in my identity, I've watched my parents develop in their understanding of identity, which I'm very fortunate to have. Um, so it, it's interesting to sometimes see them go through their process too. And, and then us being able to sit in who we are around them so that they can really see what that, what that identity is. And like all of us, like you were saying, it's hard to be authentic and close to people when we're kind of closing off certain parts of ourselves. Yeah, definitely. But I also think family is different. So I think family mm-hmm. on a whole is has just a different dynamics. I think outside mm-hmm. of being queer, I think just growing up and just anyone just growing up, if you have a family that you are pretty close with and just becoming an adult um, mm-hmm. without anything else associated to it, it is even challenging to find your voice with family. Mm-hmm. because either you were told you're a child, like, sit down, like, right. <laughs> it's not your conversation, or there's a barrier. And so when, mm-hmm. you, and when you become an adult, there's no barrier. You still, it's still weird for me to, like, have a drink around my parents. It has absolutely nothing to do with me being queer. It's just, right. like, it's <laughs> it's weird as hell. I'm, like, 36. It's still weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, uh, and I think that that's all part of it. And I think it's interesting, um, I'm actually really grateful that I can be an adult with my parents and and appreciate who they are as human beings and not as like mom mm-hmm. and dad or mm-hmm. whatever you call your parents. It's just um, I'm grateful that I can do it as an adult <laughs> with like I yeah. feel like a I don't know my mind uh, in a good place. 
Yeah, that's great. There's this interesting point, I think, as we become adults, that our parents become more human, right? Like, as a kid, there are these parent figures, and they're supposed to be a certain way. And then like, once I got to a point, I was able to like, see their humanness more and see their faults and see them as people who also are just trying to do their best and make mistakes and get through life. As I become, well, now surpassed the age that they were when they had all of their kids and trying to imagine what that must have been like, it definitely kind of shifted things for me too. And and it's a really interesting process to go through, especially as like they're starting to age and like, I'm like, oh, I'm their generation now. And that feels weird. And because I don't have kids, but I am thinking about where they were at when they were my age. It definitely shifts things a lot for me. Yeah, it's funny hearing. um, I think my mom still says she feels like she's 25. Right? <laughs> you know, as an adult, as I get older, I still feel like there's a certain ways in which I feel more settled in myself and I feel like an adult. But then sometimes I'm like, I still just feel like a 22 year old who doesn't know what's going on. And I'm just having to like fake it in certain situations. And I think for some people that feeling stays, you know, and, you know, my mom is 70 and she's like yeah I don't feel 70 I feel like I'm just like a 25 year old like just figuring stuff out sometimes you know (laughs) and so that's very relatable to think like okay so there's not as much of a separation of you know suddenly you become an adult and then you know everything and you're like this otherworldly being you know as (laughs) as a kid it seemed like adults were so much higher above me but I think really most people are just kind of figuring it out as they go along. Um, and so it's very relatable now to see like, oh, yeah, my 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 parents are just, you know, other humans trying to figure stuff out. Exactly. Doing the best they can. We're at story time, too. So we'd love to hear the story you have to share with us. So when I when I was a kid, I wanted to grow up to be Jennifer Knapp. Okay, most people probably don't know who that is, so I will back up a little bit. So um, as I was saying earlier, my father's a minister, and growing up in Ross, Ohio, population 2000, I listened almost exclusively to Christian radio. Uh, unlike most Christian artists, Jennifer was not completely squeaky clean, and she wrestled with God in her music. And as a moody Christian teenager, I thought that was really cool. My youth group had this black and white poster of her on the wall that when we moved locations, they were going to throw it out, but I saved it from the trash, and I took it home with me and put it up on my bedroom wall. The poster kept me company during this mysterious period when Jennifer disappeared from music. I wondered... What had happened to her? Had she burnt out, lost her faith, moved somewhere edgy like Cleveland? (laughs) I left the poster behind when I made this big leap after college to move to New York City to start a music business internship. My dad warned me about this heathen city, and he was right to because when I was there, I realized I liked girls. But Being queer meant that I could never return to my faith community. I spent a lot of time 
watching the L word and crying. But I would also put on Jennifer's CDs and she would sing lines like, who am I to be fallen? And her voice became the soundtrack to my own wrestling with God. So you you can imagine when I saw a headline that Jennifer was one coming back to music and two coming out as a lesbian, my brain exploded. I sent my, I sent her coming out interview with Christianity today to my dad as like a trial balloon for my own coming out. And even though he pronounced the word lesbian as if it were some kind of insect, he didn't say that we should stone her. And that was the first time I knew that I would survive. When I got to see Jennifer in concert for the first time at a little club on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, I was out to most of my family by that point, and I had my first girlfriend by my side. My girlfriend, we're not together anymore, but we're friends. It's fine. She bought me Jennifer's CD for her to sign, and Jennifer talked to me like I was a real person. I was working full-time in music at this point, but I was still completely starstruck. Jennifer stood up to a homophobic pastor on Larry King Live to pave the way for people like me. I was so grateful to her and convinced that she was a superhero walking among us mortals. I continued following Jennifer on social media, and one day I saw that she posted she was emailing record labels. I was confused. Did my hero not have a record label? But wait, I was working at a record label. I had to help her. But wait, who was I to help her? But wait, who better to help her than a queer preacher's kid working in the music business? I convinced my boss to fly her up to play a few songs for us and to come in for a meeting. And as she came into our office and talked through the ups and downs of her comeback career with her slight Kansas drawl, she sounded like a regular Joe. And she turned to me with my upbringing as if I were a comrade in arms who had survived the same things she had. Maybe this person I thought was superhuman was really just an ordinary woman doing her best. And then once again, I went to a little club on the Lower East Side of Manhattan to hear Jennifer play. But this time she was playing for me. Her songs still cut through to my core, but I no longer saw her as someone untouchable, but just as a beautiful person sharing her heart. After the show, my boss said, hey, she's really good. I'm like, yeah, duh, it's Jennifer Knapp. And then he said, we should sign her and you should manage her. Now, I had never managed anyone, let alone my childhood hero, but I pledged to do my best. And I managed Jennifer for six years. Behind the scenes isn't very glamorous. Jennifer and I worked really hard. But every day I heard from queer Christians who say that this ordinary woman who just wanted to make music and be with the person she loved has saved their lives. It turns out that all of our heroes are just people, and that means we can all be heroes, too. And now I'm following Jennifer Knapp. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) 
That sounds like such a surreal experience and such a full circle experience. I love those stories that just kind of come all the way back around full circle. Yeah, I love telling that story because I have to remind myself that that happened. It's so surreal to me that that happened, that Mm -hmm. sometimes I would just be like, oh, yeah, yeah, Jennifer, work with her, blah, blah, blah. But I wouldn't like remind myself of how full circle that story was. And so I appreciate telling that because sometimes those things happen in life and we have to really step back and appreciate them. Um, It was so meaningful to me, um, everything that she did and then getting to work with her. And yeah, I have to be like, I have to pinch myself sometimes. Because sometimes as time goes on, I, I feel like things that happened in the past feel like another life. Mm, right. Feel like, yeah. They feel like a lifetime ago. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm a fan. I think it was a beautiful story. I love, I don't know how we can get into your music career. That wasn't even something we talked about yet. Right. It's true. I moved to New York for an internship after college, and I never left that company. I grew from intern they, to employee. They hired me after my internship um, because I could do HTML. And so I started doing their newsletter and I started doing um, work in social media, which in 2009 meant that I was coding custom MySpace pages. And that was the thing <laughs> that I did at work. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then... I um, continued heading up social media for that company. And then I guess in 2013, I started doing management when Jennifer was my first management client. So now I'm an artist manager. um, And then I also do digital marketing for artists. Is that something you ever aspired to do or planned to do? Or do you feel like it just kind of you went down that path and it just kind of played out like that? I didn't know that this kind of career existed as, you know, growing up, I, I grew up singing in church and I wanted to be a famous Christian singer that was going to be my career. Um, and then as I got older, I started writing my own songs and those songs weren't necessarily Christian. Um, I started like, you know, processing dark teenage feelings and like writing moody songs on the piano and stuff. Um, so I thought I was going to be a singer songwriter and I did that as well. When I moved to New York, I played music for a while, but I started to realize that it's a very hard career to make, to make a living as a musician. And I saw how hard it was for people who were way more talented than me. Uh, and so over the past several years, I've transitioned into being this supportive role where I can, you know, facilitate careers of people who I, I really appreciate music that has a message and people who are trying to make the world better through music. Uh, and I, so now I get to support those people who are doing that. Uh, but I also thought that an artist manager had to be, you know, a desk pounding asshole, <laughs> like <laughs> just to be a com- that it required people to be jerks um, and loud and argumentative. And this is definitely not my personality. I'm way more of a 
a counselor and a cheerleader as a manager than a desk pounder. So um, I didn't see that as being a career that I could make for myself, but I figured out a way to be myself and do management. Um, And thankfully there's more and more people who are looking for managers who are nice and supportive rather than, you know, the bulldog in the corner who's going to tear up anybody who gets in your way. So, uh, yeah, I've made my own lane, I guess. I'm curious, are there any stories that you've come across like in your management experience of like either interacting with other managers who were like that, or, um, I'm sure there's lots of challenging personalities in that line of work. (laughs) Um, does anything kind of stand out for you as like something that was particularly challenging for you? First off, dealing with challenging personalities is definitely a factor. Um, in general, when I moved to New York as a Midwesterner, I felt like everybody had conversations by arguing and I did not understand why everyone was loud and like so opinionated Uh, So it took me a little bit to adjust to that and figure out how to be that the right kind of assertive, which isn't something that I knew how to do. You know, also just like strange requests as an intern. Um, Like I remember some (laughs) my I was my boss sent me on an errand. I had been an intern for like a month and a half had just moved to New York City and my boss sent me on this intern uh, on this errand as an intern to go pick up $5,000 cash so like go to this person's house in this strange neighborhood that I hadn't been to and pick up $5,000 cash and then bring it back to the office and just the whole time I'm like what is happening? Why am I walking around with cash? Am I like, yeah, <laughs> why didn't you want me to take a cab on the way back? He just sent me on a cab on the way there. So now I'm on the subway with $5,000 cash and just what? certain st- situations were very strange. Yeah, that sounds kind of sketchy coming back and mm-hmm. having you in the middle of New York with that much cash on you as an intern. I imagine you were pretty young. <laughs> Yeah, I was 20. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? Picking up drug money. Making <laughs> drops. You don't even know. <laughs> you, have no, you have I don't no even clue. know what it was. I don't know what it was for. Just also, my be, intern is good. <laughs> just trying to be a good intern. Yeah. So do you still do music out there in LA? Are you still pursuing that even just like as your own interests I know you said you're not necessarily doing that as a career anymore is it something you still do play music anymore which is strange to think about um like we were saying earlier it feels like it happened in another life that I was a musician at this point like uh, to even have the desire to write a song is foreign to me now which is very weird um but I think what has taken that place in my creative life is storytelling. So that kind of fills a similar space in my life in terms of like performing and being creative and, you know, mining my own experience for things that I can connect with other people on. So yeah, I'm doing that 
much more um, and not really playing any music. So who are some of your favorite artists? It's only right to ask. Who, who's oh, in, who's my favorite artists. Um, who's in the playlist today? One of my absolute favorites is Fiona Apple. She's a genius. Yeah. <laughs> I love her. Supposedly she has a new album coming out this month. Really? Which, you know, it's like hard to count on anything coming out from her because, it, you know, it's always a little difficult to get Fiona Apple music out. But um, I'm very excited for a new album. Uh, I really love this band, The National, which is like, you know, very sad, <laughs> sad, layered rock music. Uh, <laughs> but I, I love the I love them so much. And I I got to meet them uh last year which was one of the highlights of my year um they were doing a release party um for their new project and one of our clients played on their album uh and and sang on their album and i so i got to go to this party and meet two of them and i was so excited to be able to do that that was fun um yeah those are my two favorite I've been listening to, I've been going back and listening to a lot of Simon and Garfunkel recently, though. Um, it's just something about the moment feels very Simon and Garfunkel to me. I can always put on the song America and like bring tears of, like I'm crying. Um, yeah, I love them, too. I'm wondering now that you're dating a cis male, how mm -hmm. your parents have or your family have wrapped their heads around that or like yeah. do you feel a greater level of acceptance with them yeah it's it's very weird because like I was saying they my parents didn't really treat my girlfriends like we were in a relationship you know it's sort of there it felt more, way more like oh it's Jana's friend who's here um and they clearly acknowledge my relationship with my partner now um, and they, they love him, which like, I have mixed feelings about because, you know, like I want, of course I want my parents to like my partner, but I feel like they extra love him because he's a cis man. And so that, that can be frustrating to me. Uh, and so there, uh, it's difficult because I, like, I want them to, have a good relationship with us and to be a part of our family, you know, our relationship together and in the sense of like their family. And, you know, I want them to see us as family, but they clearly treat my partner now differently than they treated my ex-girlfriends. So <laughs> that can, that's frustrating. Yeah. 100%. I, yeah. I mean, I've had conversations with them saying like, I'm still bi and like, I still like post the same like queer stuff on social media and all of this. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm, it's not like I've gone back into the closet, but I worry that they see it as, oh, Jana's come home now. You know, mm -hmm. Jana's come back to the right path or something. And that's not it at all. So yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to make that more clear it's like the bisexual identity like continuous feeling of needing to prove queerness and needing yeah. to validate queerness yeah that can be a struggle yeah it yeah it feels like 
it feels both that it's not seen by queer or straight people. Like mm-hmm. straight people sort of see me as one of them and I'm not. And then queer people don't always see me as one of them when I am. So it's like getting that feeling of non-acceptance from both sides. Yeah. I know you mentioned that there's a, the a organization that you've connected with that's been really supportive. Yeah. has kind of created that space to connect with other people who are bisexual. Um, that organization is called AMBI, so it's A-M-B-I. I think you can go to AMBI.org or they're on meetup.com. Um, and they're active in several cities uh, in the country. I know that they have a big presence in the Pacific Northwest um, as well as Southern California. I'm not sure what other cities off the top of my head, but I would really recommend any bi people to check them out. They're a lovely, supportive organization. And it's been, it was really healing to me to spend time around so many bi-identified people and to have conversations and for us to all just kind of get each other. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's not something that I had ever had before. Like I never really connected with groups of other bi people before. So that was really, really cool. Well, I know things are different with social distancing and all of that, but is there anything else that you want to plug besides that organization, any of your social media or anything that you're involved in that you want to let the listeners know about? Yeah, um, I've now been invited to do a couple of online storytelling shows. This is the world we're in. So they'll probably have happened by the time this comes out, but Uh, I'm sure there will be more. So you can find those on my social media. I'm on Instagram at Jana M. Fisher and uh, Twitter at Jana Fisher. And I will plug any storytelling shows that I'm doing on there. Very cool. The nice thing about the online storytelling shows is that they're not location specific. So in the past, it's like, oh, I can only perform for, you know, people in L.A. Or sometimes I would Mm -hmm. perform in New York when I was there. Um, but now it's, you know, anyone in the country can see. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Well, it's been great having you. Thank you so much for spending yeah, part of your you. Saturday it's morning with great. us. Yeah. Congratulations on, congratulations on your engagement. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I didn't talk nice. about that, but yeah, now I'm trying to figure out how to plan a wedding that oh my, my identify identity as a bi person like, but also plan a wedding without being able to visit any venues is a little strange at the moment but yeah I bet. Uh, congrats yeah. and good luck Thank with you. all of that it's a very different world to be planning something like that in right now so yeah. yes yeah. it is well enjoy the rest of your day yeah thank you both it's a great, nice to great meet talk you. To you. likewise yeah. Bye. Bye. Connect with Beyond Queer Stories on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Queer Stories and on Twitter at Beyond Queer Pod. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, click the link on our Facebook or Instagram page or email us at beyondqueerstories at gmail.com. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please rate us and subscribe to help boost the podcast. Our podcast music is created by Beast Deadwell. Check out her music, tour dates, and other queer art at beastedwell.com. That's B-E-S-T-E-A-D-W-E-L-L.com. 
Beyond Core Stories is produced and edited by Dawn Brown and recorded in the Cards Against Humanity podcast studio in Chicago, Illinois. Check out their products at cardsagainsthumanity.com. Talk to y'all next week. Next time on Beyond Queer Stories. Uh, and so I, I asked Google, like, the fuck is wrong with me? And, uh, <laughs> and Google takes me down a rabbit hole that leads me to a Reddit thread <laughs> of all places. And I'm reading this Reddit thread, and, and I'm like, holy shit, this is me. Like, I am probably have always been asexual. Ba-da, ba-da.